Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. J. Butchachevsky, Professor of Government and Philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin, giving a talk entitled Natural Law and the American Founding, Were the Founding Fathers Confused? This talk is part of the Distinguished Speaker Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. In the second chapter of his letter to the young church in Rome, St. Paul declared that even the Gentiles, who had never heard of the Bible, didn't have the law of Moses, as he put it, they had not the law, were accountable to their consciences because God's law was written on their hearts. The traditional name, the philosophical name for the law written on the heart is the natural law. For centuries, not just from biblical, but from other, other, uh, other uh, contributors to, the, to Western tradition, uh, pagan philosophy had been friendly to the idea of natural law. The fathers of the church were full of the idea of the natural law. Uh, from a lot of uh, uh, the Roman jurisprudence were uh, full of the natural law. This, from a lot of different sources, the natural moral law was the spine of the Western tradition of ethics and jurisprudence. It was the axis on which it turned for something like 23 centuries, and it had this status among Catholics and non-Catholics alike. No one dreamed of calling the the natural law Catholic morality, as people often will today. Uh, Everyone recognized that it was universal morality, it was human morality. The founders of the American Republic viewed it that way too. In the Declaration of Independence, explaining the moral reasons for their separation from England, and they were moral reasons, they were saying, this is why it's right. This is why it is morally right for us to separate from England. We're not just uh, committers of treason here. We're not rebels. They pledged themselves to what they called the laws of nature and nature's God. The laws of nature and nature's God. They went on to announce that men are not only created equal, Well, to talk about how we're created is to talk about our nature. This is, again, an allusion to natural law. But that they are endowed equally by their creator with certain rights, rights which they called unalienable because they're outgrowths of natural law. And finally, they called all these truths self-evident, which means that they're so plain to the normal adult human mind that no one can honestly claim not to know them. To put it another way, they understood that there are certain foundational moral principles which we can't not know. That it's literally impossible not to know certain moral basics. They were explicitly affirming these moral basics as the basis of their hoped-for republic, their hoped-for experiment in self-government, as the soil in which what they called the Novus Ordo Seclorum, the new order for the ages, would put down roots and grow. So even though they hoped for a new order of things to last through the ages, they wanted it to put down its roots in something that was very old, something that had been with us since the beginning, something that had been with us since creation, that was instilled in our own created nature. Now, a certain type of speaker might now stop. (laughs) or just say the same thing over and over again for 25 minutes and suggest that the question of America's relationship to the natural law is all settled. Hey, we're a natural law republic, okay, period. I hope I won't disappoint you. I can't be that kind of speaker. I wish it were true. 
Please don't misunderstand. I'm going to be very, every bit as opinionated as, as that kind of speaker. <laughs> I probably will repeat myself over and over. Uh, but I can't defend that particular opinion. If you ask whether there really is a natural law, I answer yes, there is. If you ask whether the founders intended to ground the American Republic on it, I'll say yes, they did. But if you ask how well they understood the natural law, or whether they succeeded in grounding their republic on it, my answer is much more equivocal. And that's what I would like to explain. Now, in order to explain it, I have to take a couple of steps back, though, because after all, very few Americans today have even heard of the natural law. Considering the events of the founding, it's odd, don't you think? The founders made so much of the natural law, you would think that every American would learn of this. Although I guess maybe not. Um, I was speaking to my students just the other day in a course of mine that I teach on religion and, and uh, politics and uh, American thought, and they were intelligent, uh, well-educated um, uh, students. But, they were but some of them were astonished to hear from me that Thanksgiving, uh, a national holiday, not a specifically Christian holiday, of course, but that Thanksgiving Day had been instituted in order to give thanks to someone, to give thanks to God. Um, they had always, it had always been described to them as just a day to maybe be glad for things that we have, we have food to eat, or maybe to commemorate how thankful the pilgrims were to the Indians for helping them out during that first hard winter. The fact that uh, American Congresses had had, uh, had declared days of not just thanksgiving, but of prayer and fasting to give thanks for God's blessings to the new nation. That just has disappeared from history books and from American consciousness very largely. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised that other people will disappear, other things will disappear from American consciousness too, including the natural law. Among people who have heard of the natural law today, well, one student said to me the other day, that's kind of like Mowgli, right? <laughs> in uh, in, uh, in the, uh, the story, he thought it referred to something like the law of the jungle, or the survival of the fittest, or maybe something like gravity. Okay, yeah, natural law, I believe in natural law. There's gravity and there's, there's the Newton's three laws of motion and things like this. Um, or maybe if they've taken a few college courses and have learned something about the history of political thought or ethical thought, they may think that it has something to do with the social contract. All too often, natural law is treated as a rarefied study of academic philosophers like me, remote from the concerns of ordinary folk, rather quaint, and maybe kind of ridiculous. The irony of that attitude really cuts like the edge of a knife, since from its very beginnings, the aspiration of the natural law tradition was not to concoct a rarefied academic theory, unconnected with the moral common sense of the plain person, but it was to set in order the moral common sense of the plain person, to help him to understand some of the things that he dimly grasped already, and to purify that common sense and elevate it. These moral basics, these principles of conscience, that universal moral common sense written on the heart, which can be distorted and denied, but never truly erased. And to this day, that's the tradition's deepest goal, is to do that. Why is it then that the natural law tradition has become so unfamiliar to us today? No doubt there are a lot of reasons. Surely, though, one of the most important is this. The varieties of natural law thinkers, of, in natural law theories, excuse me, that were known to the American founders had already been thinned and flattened. 
by the intellectual currents of what we call today the Enlightenment. Uh, the thinkers of the so-called Enlightenment said they believed in natural law, most of them did, uh, but they discarded most of the equipment of the natural law tradition, of the classical tradition of natural law, and they denied its most important premises. Um, furthermore, the new equipment which they installed in its place to plug the holes, for instance, the fictitious social contract and the thoroughly unnatural state of nature, um, uh, which would be a very unnatural way to live, turned out to be less plausible than the old equipment which they'd thrown away. In the early days, their theories inspired revolutions, but over time, the very idea of a natural law evaporated. People thought, well, if that's natural law, you know, that doesn't seem very plausible. Uh, people became more sophisticated and realized that people had never lived in the so-called state of nature. That, in fact, it wasn't natural for people to live uh, without, uh, without, um, uh, without authority, without, uh, without governing themselves, and so forth. Um, uh, and they just threw out the whole idea. When the idea of natural law evaporated, unfortunately, it left a kind of a sticky residue. You know, they talked about natural law, but they said a lot more about natural rights. And uh, so what we have today is a sort of a rights talk that is that has lost its connection with natural law. It's a rights talk which is moored in nothing but subjective will and a kind of a uh, let's get happy philosophy uh, moored in subjective desire. You know, it is, though, it is as though there had been a massive electrical blackout of the mind. The lights of the natural law that had once seemed to shine so brightly can hardly be seen anymore. An intriguing interpretation of this blackout was once offered by the 19th century Catholic writer Orestes Brownson. I'm not the first person to make this observation to you, but, but uh, I think it's correct. He said the founders were, as he put it, bravely inconsequent. And they builded better than they knew. What he meant by calling them bravely inconsequent was that they didn't consistently follow their own premises, and he was glad about that. That's why he called it brave. They didn't follow them to their logical consequences. He was glad. Um, what he meant by saying that they built it better than they knew was that even though the political institutions they developed seemed to be just crammed with natural law insight, they were just the sort of institutions that you should have built if you believed in the natural law. Nevertheless, he said their theories of the natural law weren't very good. And, at, and many of them held religious doctrines which militated against the natural law. They put such emphasis on human sin and on the fall of man that it made it seem implausible that fallen man could possibly have any clue to the natural law anymore because his nature was just a bad thing now, right? To put it another way, Brownson believed that the institutions that the American founders developed embodied deeper insights into the natural law than their theories of natural law did. As Brownson saw the matter then, the task facing the Americans of his day and of the days to come, which includes us, was to recover the classical natural law tradition, the original natural law tradition without which these insights that were embedded in the institutions could neither be elucidated nor preserved. If Americans failed in the task, then he thought that not only would the very idea of the natural law be discredited, as it has been, but that the institutions themselves, deprived of their necessary moral and intellectual support, would suffer distortion and decline. I agree. 
And I'm going to tell you about the classical natural law tradition, which even most scholars of the American founding know very little about. Most scholars of the American founding talk about early modern natural law theory and all that jazz about social contract and so forth. I want you to talk, I want to talk about what came before that so much of which they threw away. But I'm not going to describe it to you in the abstract and technical language which the uh, classical natural lawyers used in their treatises. Uh, there are great advantages for technical languages sometimes if you want precision. But I'm going to describe it rather in the language of that common sense which after all they loved and were trying to purify, elevate, and set in order. What is the natural law anyway? Yeah, I know, I told you the law written on the heart. <laughs> but what does that mean? Uh, sometimes people say, oh, that just means how I feel, right? <laughs> Something must be right because I feel okay about it. No. When people ask, what is the natural law, they may also be asking a number of different questions, so there have to be a number of different answers. Let me take up a couple of those questions in turn. What is the natural law itself? The natural law is the foundational principles of right and wrong that are built into how we are made and that are both right for everyone and at least if we're talking about the moral basics at some level known to everyone. It take, you can, sometimes when people say the natural law they mean those general principles themselves. Sometimes they mean those principles taken together with some of their uh, more obvious corollaries. Now, not all of those corollaries are obvious. A lot of things can make them obscure. There's also a difference between things that are obvious in themselves and things that are obvious to us. And the natural law traditions always recognize that. The self-destructiveness of, of drunkenness, for instance, is obvious in itself, but it may not be obvious to the drunk because he's been destroying the mind that needs to recognize it. What's in the natural law? That might be the second thing that people mean when they say, what's the natural law? They mean what's in it, what's its content? What does it tell you? Well, its content is well summarized by the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Uh, I don't mean that people know the natural law by reading about the Ten Commandments in the Bible, but rather that the biblical Ten Commandments resonate with truths which are dimly known everywhere. You know, in the Bible, the uh, Hebrew people are asked by God at one point through Moses, what other people has such good laws as these ones that I'm giving you today? Now unless they'd already known something about the law even before he gave it to them, how could they answer a question like that? How could they make a comparison and say, yes, this is better than what we've heard about among the Hittites or <laughs> among the Egyptians. This is better. In order to make such a comparison, you would have already had to know something. But you could say, this is a better, this is a purer expression. This is, this is a, an expression which up, uplifts our minds to see the truth that we dimly perceived even better than anything else that we have heard. People in all times and places recognize that it's good to honor parents. Uh, Buddhists do, wrong to commit adultery, the Chinese and the Africans do, and so on, even though they may fail to live up to what they know and even though they may fudge the details. Another thing that people mean sometimes when they say, well, what is the natural law? What they mean is, how is the natural law law? The answer is, you know, because we don't necessarily associate nature and law, uh, the answer is that it has the qualities of all authentic law. Every genuine law is an ordinance of reason for the common good made by competent public authority and promulgated or made known. 
okay? It's an ordinance of reason for the common good made by competent public authority and promulgated or made known. Cons now consider, you can see how this would be true of something like a traffic rule, right? It's reasonable, it's for the common good. Public authority has made the, made the rule, don't go faster than 30 miles an hour in a residential neighborhood, uh, and it's been promulgated. There's no such thing as a secret speed limit. Uh, um, but now that's true of the natural law too. Consider the commandment against murder. It isn't an arbitrary whim, but a rule that the mind can grasp as right. It doesn't serve some special interest, but the universal good. Its omnipotent author is the competent public authority of the whole universe because he created it, and it is not a secret rule, for he's arranged his creation in such a way that every rational being knows about it. Even the murderer knows the wrong of murder. Even the thief knows the wrong of theft. Even the adulterer knows that he really ought to be faithful to his spouse. How is the natural law natural? That's another thing people may mean. Uh, we just said, how is the natural law really law? Sometimes when people say, what do you mean natural law? What they mean is, how is it really natural? What does it have to nature? I don't, they, you know, they think of nature as Newton's three laws of motion, like I said, something like that. They say, I don't get it. Well, the answer is that the testimonies to this fundamental right and wrong are woven into how we are made. The testimonies to it, the witnesses to it, are woven into God-given human nature, right into the creational design, and they come with being human. What testimonies? Well, the classical approach to national law recognizes at least four of them at least four natural pointers to what's right and wrong, and I like to call them the four witnesses. The first witness is deep conscience. As I mentioned before, and I talked about this last night, too, in that other talk, there are certain basic moral truths which we can't not know. Well, how do we know them? You might have a child, for instance, who has never been in explicitly instructed in the golden rule, He's never been told, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And yet, when his mother tacitly appeals to that rule by saying, don't pull your sister's hair, how would you like it if she pulled your hair? That chide, that scolding, makes sense to him. How is that? That's deep conscience. This doesn't mean that moral teaching is unimportant. What it means is that when moral teaching works, it works by interacting with something that's already there. Teaching plants seeds, but it doesn't supply the soil to plant them in. Okay? The uh, ancient term for this was syndaresis. The second witness is our sheer designedness. Our sheer designedness. We don't experience ourselves. We don't experience our own nature like a mechanism or just a collection of a parts or a blooming, buzzing confusion, but as a meaningful order. Although it is true that if we've been living in a way that violates the natural law, this order may be dim and obscure to us. One thing the recognition of designedness does is point to the designer. It reminds us that we have duties not only to each other but to him as well. Another thing that it does is remind us that human beings are not just meaningless and purposeless results of a process that did not have us in mind. If we were only the re meaningless and purposeless results of a process that did not have us in mind, then why should we even listen to deep conscience? Because deep conscience itself would merely be one of those meaningless and arbitrary results of that same process. You know, there was a fellow once, uh, George DeLury, he was convicted of uh, murder, he killed his wife. Um, he wrote a book afterward justifying himself after he got out of prison. He said uh, for, for months after killing her, he felt 
pangs of remorse that were just unbearable. But he said that this was not to be taken seriously because it was merely the instinctual primate aversion to taking the life of your own species. You see? So if so-called conscience really had just been this meaningless result of this process, then you would have to say so-called. It wouldn't be really conscious. It wouldn't be giving you a message. So you see the first witness, deep conscience, and the second witness, the recognition of our sheer designedness, actually work together. The third witness is the actual details of our design. We start thinking not just, well, I, I, gee, I seem to be, I'm, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, but we, we start saying, well, how am I made? Uh, we think about the actual features of our design along with the purposes and meanings that are embedded in them. Everything in us is for something and means something, and these purposes and meanings establish conditions for human flourishing. You know, that even exists at a, at a, at a, at a, at a, at a, even a bodily level, for goodness sake. You, when, to kiss is to express affection, to slap somebody is to, is to, is to insult. Uh, you, can't, you can't just say that that's social convention, but there's more to it than that. There are more fundamental features of our design. Uh, for instance, the uh, complementarity of male and female. There's something missing in the guy, that, you know, the man, that he, that, uh, that he may need the woman to point out to him, and she balances him, and it works the, in the other direction too. Try suppressing features of our design like conscience, or the procreative and unitive meanings of the sexual powers, or the complementarity of male and female, or the inbuilt longing to know what things mean. You know, Freud used to talk about all these horrible things that he thought would happen if you suppressed libido, but um, try suppressing things like conscience and see what happens. It's a lot worse. If any of these things are stifled, we're headed for trouble. The mention of trouble brings me to the fourth witness. The fourth witness is that actions have natural consequences. This is the witness of last resort, the one which kicks in when we've ignored all the others. Uh, those who cut themselves bleed. Those who betray their friends are betrayed by their friends. Those who ab abuse drugs become their slaves. Those who abandon their children have no one to comfort them when they're old. Those who travel from bed to bed eventually lose the very capacity for romantic intimacy. Those who make themselves stupid and wicked by telling themselves that they don't really know what in fact they do know about right and wrong end up making themselves, well they end up succeeding, but in fact they end up making themselves even stupider and wickeder than they had intended. St. Paul was right, whatever a man sows he also reaps, and this lesson is sown right into the fabric of experience. Okay, now to sum up that part of my talk, I've mentioned four witnesses, deep conscience, the designedness of things, the actual features of the design and the natural consequences of our actions. Now the hallmark of the classical natural law tradition is that it tries to, always tries to weave all of the great classical authors, especially Thomas Aquinas, tried to weave all four witnesses together. But as I mentioned earlier, the early modern theories of natural law that were known to the American founders didn't do that. They were thinned and flattened theories. None of them tried to weave all four witnesses together. They ignored some of them and they, and they, um, and they misunderstood the rest. To change the metaphor, they always pushed some of the four witnesses out the door and, and starved the ones that they allowed to, uh, or neglected the ones they allowed to stay inside. Let me give you an example. I was telling you earlier that everything is for something and means something in us, in us. Um, uh, what, is what is the capacity for anger for? To, 
to, uh, to arouse us to the defense of endangered good things? Uh, what are the sexual powers for? For turning the wheel of the generations. The classical tradition believed that these purposes and meanings are built right into us and in into every power and capacity. To violate them is to violate our very selves. The purpose of the lungs is to oxygenate the blood. The purpose, you shouldn't sniff glue. The purpose of the heart is to circulate blood. You shouldn't drive a knife into it. The purpose of the thumb is to oppose the fingers so as to grasp. The purpose of the theoretical intellect is to wonder about the truth and hopefully to find it out, especially the truth about God. The purpose of the practical intellect is to deliberate about what to do. Um, uh, the purpose of the sexual powers, as I mentioned, to unite the man and the woman in a loving partnership which turns the wheel of the generations. The purpose of the capacity for anger, all of those. But at the dawn of the modern period, Francis Bacon, a very influential thinker, had said that this was all wrong. He didn't exactly deny that our nature embodies purposes and meanings. What he said is, well, okay, God put them into us. That was his purpose in designing us. And so you'd have to read God's mind in order to know what the purpose was. He treated the purpose as something which was in God's mind but not in the thing itself. The relationship between that purpose, you know, the mind of God and the thing was, was like when you make a mechanism, okay? Um, and he said that, said that since, you know, since nature is not our production but God's, the purposes implanted in natural things are scientifically inscrutable. Maybe that's something theologians can worry about, he said. But that's not really science. Trying to identify the purposes and meanings built into things is just a distraction from real science. Now, I suggest that that view is preposterous. Is it really true that you have to read God's mind to know that the purpose of the lungs is to breathe? Of course not. But if we can discern the purpose of the lungs, then we can't, why can't we discern the purposes and meanings of all, the, of all those other powers and capacities that are built into us too, and even maybe our own purpose as beings ma made for God? himself. Unfortunately, Bacon was a great stylist and a supreme propagandist, and political thinkers believed him. Political thinkers like who? Well, political thinkers you will have heard of, perhaps, of Thomas Hobbes. Uh, how many of you are government majors, political science majors? Any of you in here? All right. How many of you have heard of Thomas Hobbes? All right, quite a few of them. He had nothing but contempt for the idea that everything in this is for something and means something. So he threw that one of the four witnesses right out the door. Um, well, of course, if you're going to throw out that witness, you're going to have to win throw out the witness of the designedness of things in general. That goes out. Um, he didn't make anything of deep conscience. In fact, he threw out three of the four witnesses. The only one that he kept was the witness of natural consequences, that your actions have consequences. And uh, he allowed even that witness only a small voice because, you know, there are all kinds of consequences. Look, in my retailing of consequences before, you betray your friends, you don't have any friends, you, uh, you, 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 use, you use dope, you become its slave, you, make yourself, you tell yourself lies and you're going to make yourself stupid. I'm talking about intellectual consequences, I'm talking about social consequences, I'm talking about bodily consequences. He only talked about one. The only consequence to which he paid serious attention was violent death. Violent death. Hobbes, fortunately, wasn't a great influence on the founders, but they were strongly influenced by John Locke, who was in turn influenced by Hobbes. Locke's theory of inalienable rights was, was well, it provided Thomas Jefferson with the scaffolding for the Declaration of Independence. 
and the understanding of natural rights that was in that. Unfortunately, Locke thinned and flattened the natural law tradition too. He didn't travel that road of thinning it out and flattening it as far as Hobbes did, but he traveled it pretty far. Although his theory is a good deal thicker than the Hobbesian theory, it's pretty thin gruel compared with the classical tradition. You just didn't have the stuff there that you needed to make sense of human nature and the law built into it. Now here is the odd thing. The American founders themselves didn't seem to notice how the modern theories that they followed had thinned and flattened the classical tradition. They had read many of the ancient authors too. They didn't read uh, Thomas Aquinas, but they read Richard Hooker, who had been influenced by Thomas Aquinas. They read Cicero, they read Aristotle, they read things like this. But they indiscriminately mixed thick classical thinkers with thin modern thinkers. They thought they were quote-unquote harmonizing them. For example, Thomas Jefferson made this remark, I quote, all the authority of the Declaration of Independence rests on the harmonizing sentiments of the day, whether expressed in conversation, in letters, in printed essays, or in the elementary books of public right, uh, like Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, etc. Now, Aristotle and Cicero were thick thinkers who tried to weave all the four witnesses together. Locke and Sidney were thin thinkers who didn't. So that's an odd set. Here's another example. In one of his works, the revolutionary statesman John Adams writes, These are what are called revolution principles. They are the principles of Aristotle and Plato, of Livy and Cicero, of Sidney and Harrington, and Locke. The principles of nature and eternal reason, the principles on which the whole government over us now stand. Now, that collection of thinkers disagreed with each other on many things, including his views on revolution. Uh, same problem, like Aristotle and Cicero, uh, Plato and Livy were thick thinkers. But Locke, Sidney, Harrington, they were thin thinkers. Now, if you think the thin theories, the ones that throw some of the four witnesses out the door, can be harmonized with thick ones that insist on keeping them inside the house and, and, and weaving them all together, you have to be missing an awful lot of what the, of what the thick thinkers were saying. You have to be overlooking it rather badly. And that, I suggest, is exactly what the founders did. In fact, the problem was still worse. Not only did these thinkers dilute the natural law tradition, but they lacked the resources to keep it from becoming uh, even more dilute after their own generation as time went on. Little by little, their brave little continent of Republican theory was washed away by the dissolving flood that they unleashed. Now, let me be charitable. In one sense, they aren't to blame for what happened. Um, and in another sense, they are. Locke deserves credit for wanting to, he did want to, to tether the idea of natural rights to natural duties. He did make connections. He made them, though, in such a weak way that many people who read him don't even notice them. Uh, and he says so little about natural duties that in later generations, rights talk broke its tether and began to float free. To our ancestors, a right is something which makes it possible to fulfill our duties. To most people today, a right is something which allows us to neglect our duties. It's like a morality-free zone. Okay? Hey, get off my back, man. I got, I got a right here. Uh, and how do you know you have a right just because you say you do? Even the U.S. Supreme Court has taken up this libertine flag. For as the plurality in a 1992 case declared, 
Uh, you say, what do you mean, the plurality? Well, there was no majority. There was a majority in favor of what to do in the case, but there was no majority in favor of any particular reason as to why they should do that. Uh, all you had was four justices. That was the largest coalition for any theory of why the outcome of the case was right. And this was the plurality. They declared, I quote, uh, uh, jurisprudence, jurisprudence scholars call this the mystery passage. Uh, Justice Scalia calls it the sweet mystery of life passage. They said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Let me repeat that. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, you might think that the court was only saying, you get to believe whatever you want about those things, and we don't coerce anybody. We don't brainwash you. No, that's not what they were saying. The court wasn't talking about what you can believe. The court was talking about you, what you may do. How do we know that? This was an abortion case. This statement was offered in defense of the idea that you can kill an unborn child. Do you see it? Because I have the right to define my own concept of existence, I get to say that the unborn child doesn't exist. Because I get to define my own concept of meaning, I can say that his life has no meaning, even if he has one. Because I get to define my own concept of the universe, I get to say that child doesn't belong in it. Because I get to design the mystery of human life, I get to say that child has no part in that mystery. Now what if I were to say that according to my concept of existence, you don't exist. Your life has no meaning and you have no place in the universe. Can I bump you off? Uh, but the court does not reason that far. This is an empty concept of liberty. And I'll tell you, any king who says everything is permitted will always reserve to himself the authority to say, but I get to tell everyone what everything includes. So it's a concept of liberty that is infinitely wide and infinitely thin. I suggest to you that what's best in the American experiment in self-government can be preserved only if we return to the thick tradition of natural law, which the theories of the founders had thinned. Can such a thing happen? Orestes Brownson thought that it could and that it had better, and he looked to the Catholics of his day to bring about this kind of intellectual renaissance. There are grounds for hope. From one point of view, it's already happening among philosophers, the classical natural law theory, and some other somewhat parallel developments. There's something called neo-Aristotelianism of ethics. These are all, this is already experiencing a modest renaissance. Many of the issues of natural law are actually understood in greater depth than ever before in our history. Some of them are understood in greater depth just before because we're so confused that it has forced people to work out the premises of the argument more precisely than they have ever done in the past. We know much more about the natural foundations of the family than any of our ancestors did in the natural law tradition because we have been so sharply challenged by the disintegration of the family in our times. I'm confident that these new insights are going to be an inestimable treasure to generations yet unborn. Whether they come in time or spread quickly enough to do the republic any good, that remains to be seen. But be brave. Maintain your witness. Trust God and learn everything you can. <laughs> Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.